0: Now, let me tell you what the biblical world can't, view can't do. It can't answer every question. I, I'd love to tell you that if you had a proper biblical worldview and you spent your whole life studying the Bible, you'll understand every question. It's not true. Like, for example, can you, is the biblical worldview going to help you assess whether climate change is caused by man-made CO2 or not? It's not, it, not going to answer that question. It doesn't answer every single question in life. What it does is it gives you the big picture. To Church of the Rock from Winnipeg. Stay tuned to this week's thought provoking message from Pastor Mark Hughes. beginning a brand new series called understanding your times or our times and developing a biblical worldview. I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but let me begin by this. There's this Asian blessing that goes like this. May you live in interesting times. Well, if that's a blessing, we must be really blessed right? Because there are more interesting times than now. And when I use the word interesting, I'm doing it euphemistically. I could be using bizarre, crazy, insane, broken, confused, uh, and a whole bunch of other things to define our world. Did we ever think that we would see a time where we had legalized recreational drugs that you can go down virtually at the corner store and pick it up like a bag of candy? Did we ever think we would see that? Did we ever think we'd have legalized suicide where we had medical assisted suicide to kill off the most vulnerable of our society? Did we ever think we would see the day where people got to choose their gender and whatever gender they wanted? I mean, has it become can it become more confusing than this? I mean, that wasn't the way it was a generation ago. A generation ago, I don't know how many of you remember this, there used to be two genders, and uh, now we have, I don't know, I've lost track, is it 32, 52, 72, I'm not sure, or no gender at all, whatever you, you, you want. We, we look at the world, and the world's, the world's kind of gone mad, and we have these horrific wars that are brewing in different parts of the world and where they're throwing missiles at each other and exploding and it's escalating to another level another level and are we going to end up in in a world war and then what's happened if that weren't bad enough these conflicts have actually landed back on canadian shores and we have the protests in the streets of our cities and then we have this housing crisis and we have a mental health crisis and we have a medical crisis. And then of course they tell us that the polar ice caps are going to melt and you're going to be able to get oceanfront property in Saskatchewan. <laughs> now my suggestion to you if that's true buy early while while they get well getting this getting good. And and then we have this toxic wasteland called social media that's poisoning the minds of young people today. And uh and then of course we have uh, we have Elon Musk, he's got a different perspective on this entirely. He thinks we're all doomed anyway, so he's going to go live on Mars. You know that's what his plan, right? He said, I want to die on Mars. And he says, but just not on impact. (laughs) And and he's. He's he's the only guy I know that actually has enough money to go live on Mars. But this is what he said. He said, none of this is important because the greatest existential threat to humanity is actually artificial intelligence. And here's my question. If you can have artificial intelligence, does that mean you can have artificial stupidity? (laughs) Uh, Because I think we already have enough stupidity of our own, but I have this worry that artificial intelligence may one day become artificial stupidity. And like I say, I think we have enough to go around now, right? I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember this. Uh, Ronald Reagan had this line, I used to love it. He, he would say, you know what the, the, the f- nine most frightening words are in the English language? I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> Fr- frightening words. So, so that's enough bad news, I think, for now. I mean, we look at our world, I mean, it is really in trouble. And what is our answer? What is our response? And I'm going to take you to a little verse in, in First Chronicles. Maybe some of you know it, but it, it's so fascinating. It's First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. One little verse, and this is what it says: The sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do, their chiefs were 200, and all their brethren were at their command. The sons of Issachar, Issachar was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, had understanding. Of the times that they knew what israel needed to do i think that's fascinating i think every one of you should desire to be someone like them understanding your time so you would know what to do now let me, let me give you a little historical background on this so this was during the time of of king david he'd been anointed king but he couldn't become king because his dad was his father-in-law rather was king and was trying to kill him and so they ended up in this war and gradually over time the tribes started to realize that David was actually the true leader, and they started coming alongside and and joining him to fight against his father-in-law. And so this story is the story of the tribe of Issachar coming. And here's what we know about Issachar. They had a particular portion of the promised land. There was about 90,000 of them in total. They had 16 cities. And there was these 200, 200 men, chiefs, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And so my question for you is, why did they have understanding of the times? How did they know when others didn't? How did they know what the right thing to do was? Was it because they read the Jerusalem Post every morning? No, I'll tell you why we know. What it tells us is that these were scholars, these were men, academics, who had studied the word of God at the time, which was, of course, the Torah, uh, the five books of Moses. And they studied the Torah, and they dug into the Torah, and they weren't looking at the world around them. They were looking at the scripture, and from that, they were getting understanding as to how they should live, and how they should act, and how they should respond to the world around them. And that was their their b- biblical worldview. And so when we look at w- what happened from then, the Jewish Talmud, which is Jewish historical writings, said that San- the Sanhedrin, which was the judicial court of of Israel in the time of Jesus, they say it actually came from the sons of Issachar, that they were the wisest men of their day, and the wisest men eventually became this Sanhedrin. And we find Jesus, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which were not the Sanhedrin, and he's talking to them, and he's rebuking them, and he says, you can discern the signs of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. And see, what he's requiring of us is that we would be able to discern the signs of the times. And here's where I'm going to begin this. See, everyone, a bit, here's what a worldview is. A worldview is the lens in which you view the world. And how we look at the world, we all have this lens. A lot of people don't know they have a lens, but they all have a lens. Every single human being has this way that they look, a worldview, how they look at the world. And most of us can't articulate it. It's just something that's ingrained. It comes to us from our culture. It's usually this hodgepodge of ideas and this random smorgasbord. And we kind of pretty much a a product of our culture. And even though there are some people who can, some people will say, "Uh, well, live and let live. That's how I live, live and let live. Now, that's a worldview, right? Is it a good one? What would the world look like if everybody lived and li- lived? I'll tell you what it would look like. It would be a selfish, greedy, self-centered, heartless place is what it would be. Or, or the, the Marxist worldview was let the rich pay. Or the Vulcan worldview was live long and prosper, right? I mean, these are all simple worldviews. But what we're striv- striving for is a biblical worldview. That we would see the world the way the scripture. We take the scripture... And we use it as the, the lens for which we view everything and all the news and all the happenings around us. And that's what the sons of Issachar did. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a few minutes and I'm going to go through the general categories, not all the worldviews, because there's dozens, maybe hundreds of worldviews. But I'm going to go through five major categories of worldview. And I want you to hang in there with me because I think this is going to go a long way to you understanding the world in which you live. And so the five major categories, I'm going to throw them up, and they are this. Uh, And this is my version of it. And they are, number one, indigenous, two, religious, three, materialistic, and I mean scientific materialistic, postmodern, and biblical. So I think it's important for us to look at the indigenous worldview for a moment because it's all around us, and it's all around the whole earth. And you know when the Europeans were busy discovering the world, you know what they found when they went to various continents and places? People! People! already lived there that didn't think they needed discovery because they weren't lost in the beginning and it's fascinating that as you travel the world and some people have, have done that you've been to a number of different places and one thing you find is that the indigenous people the original peoples that were in various countries and various continents around the world have an um, amazing number of similarities considering they're separated by thousands and thousands of miles and maybe thousands of years of history. Who knows? And, uh, I mean, for example, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever been to a native powwow in Canada? How many of you have been to a powwow? It's a fascinating and beautiful, I mean, it's, it's spectacularly beautiful and wonderful and there's a lot to learn. It's something I, I wouldn't discourage you from going and doing that. But, so, so I've been to a, a native powwow, but I've also been to the Yucatan Peninsula and saw the Mayan uh, natives there doing this, which I thought this was remarkably similar to what I've seen in Canada. And then we were in the South Pacific and I saw the Polynesian dancers doing almost the same thing. And I haven't seen this in New Zealand, but I've seen the Maori dancers do their thing here in in Winnipeg. And I thought, boy, there's a lot of similarities. Why is it that these indigenous people have so much in common? And more than that, their worldview is what is in common. Now, in, in North American culture, we have a more, more of a, a European uh, worldview, which is very hierarchical. And here's how we look at it. We look at it kind of like a staircase or a ladder, and man is on the top, and then there's, there's animals, and the world, and everything underneath it, and plants, and fa- flora, and fauna. And, and man at the top rules down and takes dominion over all of this, even to the point where sometimes he takes dominion over other human beings. And that's where human slavery came from. And so then you compare that with the in indigenous uh, worldview, and it's quite different because it's not a ladder, it's not a staircase, it's actually a circle. And the circle is the most sacred symbol in, in, in indigenous cultures anywhere in the world. And if you look at it, what, what the understanding is this, is that man and animal and, and mother earth and, and you know, the, the great spirit or whoever, they all, live in this harmony together. And you see the circle everywhere you go. There's the the medicine ring, or medicine wheel rather in Wyoming. There's the Mayan calendar, which again is is a circle. There's the the healing circle or the sharing circle in Canadian indigenous communities. And when you look at the indigenous worldview, I'm telling you, there's something things, some very appealing things about it. But at the end of the day, it's still not a biblical worldview. Which brings us to the next worldview, which I'm going to call religious, and I know I'm lumping them all together, but there's a reason for this. So you take the religious worldview; it could be Christian or, or Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist or animist or whatever, but they have something in common. There are differences, but they all have a sort of say one thing in common. in this is they all believe in a, in a crater or creators, like plural gods. They all have some sort of single narrative, either oral or written, like the or the or the Bible. They bifurcate the spiritual and the material part of the world. Therefore, you have the sacred and the secular. And there is some form of moral code and some form of ritual or worship or prayer or sacrifice or whatever. And so they all sort of have those kinds of things in common. And so I wanna talk about the Christian version of that for a moment, because a lot of people have a Christian worldview, and they don't realize that a Christian worldview doesn't necessarily mean you have a biblical worldview. Why? Because your Christianity and the culture of the Christianity that you might be part of might not be purely biblical. I'll give you a classic example. It's from the Middle Ages. You had 200 years of the Crusades where the European Christians were attacking the Middle East and trying to liberate the Holy Land from the Muslims. And in their mind, that was a Christian worldview, but was it a biblical worldview? Even though the the church had sponsored that, it was not something that was sponsored or told or commanded in Scripture. And so we get confused. So you look at things like, the prosperity gospel, or the social gospel, or the political gospel. None of these things are a biblical worldview. They might be religious worldview, but not biblical. So that's the second one. The third one is this, it's materialistic. And again, what I mean by materialistic is not consumeristic. I mean that we look at the world through scientific materialism, that there's nothing really spiritual about this world. There's a natural and a scientific explanation for all of it. And it really comes to us from the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. And where we had these philosophers and these men that started to look at it and say, boy, you can explain everything. You know, you can explain the moon and you can explain the stars and you can explain, you know, the rotation of the earth and the tides and you can explain all this and we don't need a creator and we don't need a God. And, and they were names you all remember from, you know, studying in school. Names like Voltaire and, 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 and Nietzsche and, and John Locke and Frederick Engels and, and Thomas Hobbes and Rene Descartes, and these people, most of them were Catholics, which was sort of interesting, and they got labeled as heretics and atheists. You know why? Because they were heretics and atheists. (laughs) That's that's why. And and, uh, you know, it's interesting that they took the world and they said, you don't really need God anymore. We can have an explanation for everything that's out there. There's lots of modern day versions of this too, right? Carl Sagan was of that ilk, and Sam Harris is of that ilk, and Richard Dawkins. There's lots of these materialists here today. I, I, lo- I love, I always have this story about René Descartes. Remember, remember what he said? What, what, was, what, what made you a human? He said, I think therefore? I, am. I think therefore I am. Because I have consciousness, then therefore I exist. And there's a funny story about him. He was in a bar one night, and he was having a drink, and the bartender came and said, "Rene." Would you like one for the road? To which he said, I think not. And poof, he disappeared. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny in an odd kind of way. It's a philosopher joke. So so you have the indigenous worldview, you have a religious worldview, you have a materialistic view. And now what we have is what's called a postmodern view, postmodernism, and it's quite fascinating. Because the postmodern view is this, is that there is no metaphysical narrative that explains the world. In fact, not only is there no narrative, no story, no Bible, no script for it, there's actually no way you can know anything for certain. And that everything is basically random. And there is no truth, and there is no absolute right and wrong, and therefore there is no moral code. In fact, there's no truth, there's truths plural. And that's why people say, I just want to speak my truth. That's my least favorite expression. If you want to speak your opinion, go ahead. Everyone's got them. They're like butts. But you know what? I, don't call it the truth. It's not the truth just because it's coming out of your mouth. It's your opinion. And yet we have gone and put everything on this same level. And truth has now become a relative Morality has become relative and what is right and wrong is all determined by what you think it is. But it goes a step further than that because everything becomes a social construct because you can't really know for sure, right? And so for example, race is a social construct. It's not real race. And that's the critical race theory. Many of you have heard of that. And you thought, well, I'm not sure what that is. Here's what the critical race theory is, is that race is actually doesn't something that exists. It was created by Europeans so they could subjugate and oppress people of other colors. Now the problem with that, as I look around the room, I see people of other races. I'm having a hard time believing this is a social construct. Take it to the next level. That's what's happened with gender. Now you understand this. See, there is no right and wrong. There is no two genders. Gender is a social construct. So you can be whatever gender you want, or whatever gender you want to make up, or no gender at all, because you don't need to have one. And see, you begin to look at this world, and you go, now I understand why it's so profoundly broken. We are living in a postmodern era. And then we get to the biblical worldview. And I'm telling you, that's where everything changes. Because now you begin to understand the times to know what you should do. And so we look at Jesus. I mean, he's a great example for almost everything. And what Jesus had was a biblical worldview. And you know I'm a lover of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think there's anything quite like it. And that's why I wrote a book on it. But when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it, it in itself is not the biblical worldview. What it is, it's Jesus applying his biblical worldview to the world that was at the time. And let me, let me explain that. He's using his la- lens, biblical worldview, to look at the culture in which they lived in, which was a religious worldview. So I'll give you an example. He, he said this. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, is that in the Bible? Yes. It's not in the Bible, sorry. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to hate your your enemy. It's not in scripture. It's not a biblical worldview. But it was their worldview. It was their religious worldview. It was the Jewish worldview that you should love your neighbor but hate your enemy. So Jesus comes along and he says, no, I say to you, if you hate your brother, you're guilty as judgment, just as bad as somebody who murders another human being. Give you another example. He said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, that in and itself is a biblical worldview. However, is it complete? It's not complete. I'll tell you why it's not complete. Because people say, well, as long as I don't commit adultery, then I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm morally pure and sexually pure as long as I don't commit adultery. Jesus comes along and says, this is why that's not true. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say, if you look at another woman with lust in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. Whoa, he took it to a whole different level, didn't he? And so he took the biblical worldview and began to say, this is what the scripture really teaches us. And see, every single one of us has the potential to be able to look at the world a little bit different. Now let me tell you what the biblical world can't, can't do. It can't answer every question. I, I'd love to tell you that if you had a proper biblical worldview and you spent your whole life studying the Bible, you'll understand every question. It's not true. Like, for example, can you, is the biblical worldview going to help you assess whether climate change is caused by man-made CO2 or not? It's not, it, not going to answer that question. It doesn't answer every single question in life. What it does is it gives you the big picture. Now, let, let me give you an illustration I think you'll all understand. How many of you are jigsaw puzzle people? You like to do jigsaws? Anybody in the room? You a bunch of people putting up your hands. I don't know what's wrong with you people, but... Uh, <laughs> I have a wife who loves jigsaw puzzles and every Christmas she pulls out the biggest one we have and it might be a thousand pieces or two thousand or might as well be a million as far as I'm concerned and she goes and dumps it on the dining room table it takes over the dining room table for two weeks before Christmas and she meticulously puts every one of those little pieces together every single one of them and she says do you want to help I can't think of anything I'd rather not do than a jigsaw puzzle. So I say, why don't I get it started for you? And I do the four corner pieces. (laughs) And I have discovered I can do those four corner pieces. You'll have to think about that, why it's so easy. And I do the four corner pieces, I say, my job here is done, the rest is up to you. So she spends the next two weeks putting all these pieces together and she always succeeds every single time. To me, it just looks like a big mess of jagged pieces of nothing. That's what it looks like. Now, for the jigsaws, jigsaw people in the room, Here's my question for you. What is the key? What is the most important thing to a jigsaw puzzle? The The box. The picture on the box. (laughs) What are you going to do without the picture on the box? Nothing. That's not working out without that picture on the box. You better have that picture on the box. If you don't have the picture of the box, who knows what it's going to look like? It could look like this. (laughs) Or like this. Or like this. And see, here's what's, here, I hope you're getting this. This is what's the problem with humanity. We don't have the picture on the box. We don't have the big big picture. So we don't know what it's supposed to look like. So we just bump along through life, making all these kinds of mistakes. Instead of realizing that God has given us a picture, he has given us a view. And I know you look out and you say, there's no way we can understand this. Don't you remember the scripture said, Pastor Mark, that my ways are above your ways, and my thoughts are above your thoughts. Well, I got news for you. He wants to share his ways and share his thoughts with you and inform you on those things. And so I'm going to show you two little verses here on this. The first one is is Psalm 25, verse 4. Listen to this. This is King David, and he's saying, Show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Why would he ask him that if it wasn't a potential that he could actually learn those things, right? Second one, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. It says, come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. He's not going to teach us every little thing in life. But you know what? He'll give us the big picture. And we'll be be able to see what God's design was and God's plan and what God's way is. So let me close with one final story on this. A very famous name in American history is a man by the name of uh, George Washington Carver. And here's a picture of him, George Washington Carver. He was born in 1860. Uh, He was born as a slave family. He was owned by a family. Actually, in those days, you took on the name of your master or your owner, whose name was Moses Carver. So hence, his name was George Carver. And uh, what had happened was, when he was about four or five years old, his parents died, both his parents. And he and his brother were left as slave orphans. And in in 1865, you'll remember this, that Abraham Lincoln signed the... uh, Emancipation Proclamation. And they were released from their slavery. What what was a four-year-old and a five-year-old gonna do to be released from slavery at that age? Right, where are they gonna go? What are they gonna do? So Moses Carver adopted these two boys and raised them as his own sons, like literally. they, They weren't servants, they weren't slaves any longer. They were his children. And he went to great efforts that these boys would have an education and get a proper education and become everything that God had intended them to be. And going to school in that day was a very difficult thing because they weren't open to black kids. And so he had to take them where he could take them and do what he had to do, and he even moved around to different states. But he got these boys an education. And, and George uh, Washington Carver, he was a great student. He just kept on moving, finally found colleges that would take him. And he ended up getting a master's in botany, which was an amazing thing for a black man in that age. And he ended up becoming a professor at Tuskegee College uh, that was run by another uh, former slave by the name of Booker T. Washington. Some of you know this history. There he is in the middle, carver. And uh, he became this very eminent biologist and biotinist and uh, scientist. And uh, what was happening in that day and age is the, the former slaves were having a terrible time. They were sharecroppers, they were growing cotton and only cotton in the south, and they weren't doing well with it because they were overcropping and continuous cropping and depleting the soils. And he was encouraging them as a scientist and a botanist to to grow legumes, in particular peanuts. He said this would be a great crop to bring into the rotation, but there was no market for it. Now here's the little secret. You won't read much of this in the history books, but this is the true story. He was an absolute man of God, a man of prayer. And George Carver got up at 5 o'clock every single morning, every single morning, and he went to the woods And he took his Bible and immersed himself in the Bible for the first few hours of his day. And he spent that time reading the Bible. He spent that time praying to God. And he spent that time trying to develop a worldview. And here's how the story goes one day, and I'm going to paraphrase it. But one day he was in his prayer time at 5 in the morning and he asked God this question. He said, Lord, show me the secret of the universe. And the Lord answered however he would do that and say, I can't show you the secret of the universe. It's too great for your little mind. He said, then show me the secret to mankind. And he said, I can't show you that, that's too great for you. And then he held up the peanut. He says, can you at least show me the secret to the peanut? To which God said, that I can show you. And here's how you need to do it. He says, take the peanut and break it down into the various compounds. The water, the fats, the oils, the starches, the resins, the sugars, the amino acids. And then recombine them into other forms and you will discover the secret of the peanut. Within only a matter of a few weeks, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, he developed 300 different uses for the peanut. We're talking cosmetics and foods. It wasn't peanut butter, by the way. Kraft had already got that done, right? Fresher in the jar than peanuts in a shell. And so uh, he developed all these things. So now there was a market for it, but still the former slaves in the South would not grow it, they were growing cotton. Then in 1892, something happened, and it was an infestation of the bull weevil. And the bull weevil came from Mexico. And I don't know how this insect got there. I don't know if it swam across the Rio Grande or it climbed over the wall. But somehow, <laughs> <laughs> somehow it got into the south. Somehow it had got into the south and it comp- in a- a- 1892 completely decimated the entire crop of cotton throughout the entire southern United States. And all of a sudden he got their attention and they started to plant peanuts and the peanuts flourished, they were immune to the the bull weevil, and their prosperity turned to a greater degree than it ever was. And he is considered to have single-handedly saved the economy of the South and the livelihood of the former black slaves in the South. And you know why? Because he had understanding of the times to know what they ought to do. And one of the incredible things about about the history of this man is if you travel through the US, you will see memorials to him everywhere you go. There are are bridges named after him. There are libraries named after him. There is a coin named after him. There is a stamp named after him. And this is my favorite part. All over the US, there's schools named after George Washington Carver. And you get the irony. Here was a man who wasn't allowed to go to school, and the schools are named after him because that's what happens. When you have a Biblical worldview and you bring God's message and God's life into humanity. And that's what our world desperately needs. And I'm going to be a bit inditing here with this last comment and say this. There's a reason why we don't really have a Biblical worldview. And it's because we spend three minutes in devotionals every year, every day, and three hours on social media. It's because we spend 30 minutes in a sermon on Sunday morning and 30 hours immersed in the world and everything the world has. And if we would take the advice of Paul the Apostle, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And in fact, that word where he says, do not be conformed, it's actually more imperative than that. It's stop being conformed. Of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and I will show you the great and the perfect will for your life, and you will have an understanding of the times, so you will know what to do. Let's stand together. If you'd like a booklet to help you understand more about God's gift of forgiveness and reconciliation through Jesus Christ, please contact us and we'd be happy to send you a free copy of the Book of Hope. Visit our website at www.churchoftherock.ca Thank you for watching and God bless you.